Hi, I'm Craig Turner, host of the Founders for Good podcast. I've spent years working in the tech for good space, and in that time I've had the privilege of interviewing inspiring impact founders, and I want to share those conversations with you. Why? Because these are the people leading the way when it comes to solving the world's most pressing issues, from climate to homelessness to health to education and much more. In these conversations, I dig into why these issues exist, possible solutions, how the founder and their business is approaching the problem, and their best kept secrets on how to build a for good company. My hope is that this will inspire you to be part of the solution and do your bit in making the world a better place. Thanks for tuning in to the Founders for Good podcast. Camise Davis is the founder of Nyla's Naturals. Cam is a very inspiring individual on a personal mission to empower black people to love their hair and feel confident and happy in who they are. When Cam's daughter had severe eczema at an early age, Cam was shocked by the lack of products that were safe and suitable for Afro hair. So she created Nylas Naturals that offers a range of hair products that are science-backed, using the highest quality plant-based ingredients and tailored for those with textured hair. Cam also does incredibly impactful charity work in the foster care system, educating and training carers on how to properly care for Afro and textured hair. Cam chats to me about the needs of those with textured hair, the impact poor hair care can have on black adults and children, building a consumer brand from the ground up, pitching on Dragon's Den and her work with foster parents. Hey Cam, pleasure having the show today. How are you doing? Hey Craig, I'm good, thank you. I'm really excited to be part of this amazing podcast. Thank you. No problem. So um, we've got loads to talk about today because then we're going to talk mainly about Nyla's Naturals, but also about um, the Untangled Project and the book that you have. Um, but I guess first, it'd be good to know a bit more about yourself. Like, um, I know, pretty broad question, but who is Cam Davis? <laughs> like, what, oh, what motivates gosh. you? What are you passionate about? That is, is such a multifaceted question because, you know, there are many components to what makes me me, so to speak. So I think first and foremost, I'm a mum. I'm a mom of two that has become my prominent identity 12 years ago when my daughter was born, um, Nyla, who I named the brand after. The, the children are definitely, you know, my inspiration. I have a boy and a girl. My daughter is 12. I'm going on 20 and my son is six going on 16, I think. <laughs> Um, I am also, you know, a really passionate woman who likes to have a solution focused approach to things that I think need to be addressed. And that is pretty much the reason why I started the brand Niners Naturals. It was because I wanted my daughter to have access to healthy, non-toxic products that would also showcase the beauty of her Afro hair. Afro hair has you know, gotten a pretty bad rap over the years. It's constantly discriminated against. You know, the recent case that happened at the Ritz Hotel where they said their employees weren't allowed to have Afro hair. So it's really challenging the concept of what is professional, what is beautiful and presenting Afro hair as, you know, a, a beautiful you know, option as it is. And we shouldn't be pressured as black people to conform to a very linear standard of what is seen to be professional or seen to be beautiful. We should be able to exist in our authentic state. So that is pretty much one of the passions um, that drives me, that drives the brand. I'm 40. um, So I'm also what would be considered, you know, a middle-aged woman. Um, which is, which is interesting. I think I went through a bit of a midlife crisis last year. Um, but I'm kind of getting over that now. Um, I'm an avid reader. 
I'm really passionate about books and knowledge. And when I do have downtime, um, you can often find me curled up somewhere reading the latest book that I'm really interested in. Um, and that's about it, really. I think those are all of the things that probably define me in the most concise way. <laughs> Yeah, no, um, you covered a lot of ground there. I mean, I could ask loads of questions about all of those different bits, um, but a lot of that resonated with me as well, like similar ages, uh, you know, dad, is, I'm a parent as well. Um, and really excited to chat to you today because like, when I was doing my research, um, yeah, when you talked about discrimination, like I was actually really shocked um, and just one of my ignorance, but to uh, some of the cases I read it, if it was in schools or you mentioned the Ritz Hotel, just just how how much discrimination is happening at the moment. So um First of all, just want to chat to you a bit about the space you're operating, which is um, for, from a Nylas Naturals perspective, is like Afro and textured hair care. Yeah. For someone that doesn't have textured hair, um, when it comes to textured hair, like what are some of the differences between textured hair um, versus other hair types and like the type of uh, how it needs to be cared for differently? Yeah. No, brilliant question. So um, I would define Afro hair as one of our prominent racial characteristics because we are in a sense, the only race of people that have this textured hair type. Now, the reason why it grows out of the scalp in this way is is kind of multifaceted. But firstly, our follicles in its shape are flat, whereas Asian and European hair types have a round or oval follicle shape. And what that means is once the hair is protruding through the, through the scalp, and through the follicles, it kind of has an effect like when you put a scissors across a ribbon and you score it and it curls and kinks. Yeah. It has a similar effect on the hair, which means that as the hair is forming, it's forming bends and kinks and curls. In addition to that, we also have um, less cuticles along the shaft of our hair and the cuticles are kind of like tiles on a roof, which protect the cortex, which is the innermost part of the hair from damage. As a result of having less cuticles and also having hair that kinks and bends at certain points, we have a lot of weaker points in our hair and our hair doesn't hold hydration as well as other hair types. And as a result of that, our hair is often um, dehydrated more often, it's drier, and it requires more care and sensitivity to ensure that it doesn't break. So, Consequently, the products that we use need to maximize hydration and moisture levels, but also be designed to help support length retention and prevent breakage. So in a nutshell, that is why our hair is different. And that's why we require not only different products, but also more products than someone with a straighter um, or wavier hair type. Got it. And um, no, that's a really, really helpful summary. And, and I guess what I'd be keen to understand next is like, how has the hair care or slash beauty industry been failing people with Afro hair then? Um, well, it's changed in the past 10 years. And that is one of the things that I'd set out to do. But prior to that, you would find that going on the high street, for example, I couldn't go into a local beauty supply stores such as super drugs and boots and find a product that was suitable for my hair type. Um, and for those very rare occasions where they did stock products that were suitable for my hair type, it was kind of at the back of the shop, in the corner of a shelf somewhere. And you, 
you feel very much ostracized and excluded from the mainstream community when your beauty products that are suitable for you are at the back of the store and really hard to find and not very well um, cared for either. They didn't provide the types of products that we needed. In addition to that, as if that's not bad enough, many of the products that had been formulated were designed to alter our curl pattern and give the message that actually you need to straighten your hair in order to be beautiful. So things like, you know, relaxers, straight perms, texturizers, things of that nature, which are all designed to elongate the hair and flatten the hair pattern. For me, um, you know, I developed a sense of pride in my identity at the age of 25. I started to do a black history course and I realized that my hair was a really integral component of who I was culturally and I no longer wanted to straighten it. But the problem was I couldn't find a product that addressed my hair needs and its natural texture. Um, and then when having my daughter as well, I really wanted her to have the message that her authenticity, her beauty, her Afro hair was just as good as any other hair type. So it, it really was about providing a solution to that. So I hope that answers the question. A hundred percent. No, it does. And, and I know things have, you mentioned things have changed slightly, but back then, what, what was the cause of that? Like, was, was it lack of representation in these companies that, that produce these products or didn't even produce the products? Was it a case of like just underestimating the size of, of the market or like just not knowing that there was a need there? Like, what, what do you think some of the root causes were? In terms of not providing products, I think it was underestimating the size of the market. Um, I you know, a lot of research had to be done to show how substantial the textured hair care market is in terms of it's a 14 billion pound market globally. And black women invest up to eight times more in their hair than any other demographic. And unfortunately, the larger beauty chains didn't cater to us because we are seen as a minority. So not understanding how we invested in our hair, they didn't really see the financial relevance and benefits of catering for the market, which I think that narrative has now changed. They're starting to understand from a capitalistic perspective um, the, the size of the market and the opportunity. But I also think that in 2010 onwards, Black women as a whole started what was called a natural hair movement. And we started to see masses of Black women reverting from wearing their hair in a perm state and actually going back to wearing their hair in a natural state. Now, the reasons for that shift was multifaceted. One of them was realizing that many of the products that we used in our hair typically were significantly toxic and had been linked to things like endocrine disruptors, carcinogenics, irritants, and the list goes on and on. Um, and there's, there was research done by the Silent Spring Institute, which found that eight out of 10 products marketed to black women contained carcinogenics. So with that information now becoming widely circulated in the community, we started to opt for products which were more natural um, and non-toxic and started to also move away from the narrative that we had to straighten our hair in order for it to be beautiful. 
and having access to the community, we were able to share information around how to properly care for our hair, what protective styling was, what type of products and ingredients and raw materials we should be looking for. And that caused this shift. And of course, you know, you've got consumer demand, which means that the larger companies now had to change what they were offering to meet the new demand of black women. Makes a lot of sense. I was going to ask about the Silent Spring Institute, but you, you brought it up. Um, um, so look, I, that that really, really insightful. And I, I guess my last question before we talk about Nylas Naturals is, is a broader one, which is just, um, you, you mentioned there, like this is one example of um, the black women being discriminated against, their lack of products available, how that can make someone feel, how that affects your culture. Um, a number, it's like a multifaceted problem, like you just said. And I'm sure it's not just hair care. That's happened across a range of things within the beauty industry. So yeah. my, my question for you is, like, if you could change one thing about the beauty industry, so there was more diversity, better representation in products, what would that one thing be? What I'm trying to change is, is to bring innovation to black hair care and black beauty products. What I found is that in terms of ingredient technology, the raw materials that are being included in products marketed to black women are still very um, simplistic in their formulation design. So, you know, technology is advancing and that includes cosmetic technology as well. And unfortunately, what I'm seeing in the hair space is that the really high performance, high efficacy raw materials are not being included in products designed for black women. And that is what I want to do. I think the reason for that, again, is quite multifaceted. One, the ingredients are quite expensive to buy. So when you've got a smaller brand who is, you know, you know, targeting the community that that is pertinent to them, they can't necessarily afford those raw materials at the quantities that are required in terms of minimum order quantities to include those in the formulation. So it kind of goes back to the raw material suppliers. They need to understand that there is a subsection of the market that are not being catered to. So the smaller beauty brands can access these high performance ingredients and include them in the products for black women. So that's one of the things that I am actually champion championing change for i'm speaking to raw material suppliers i'm negotiating with them and i'm trying to get those high efficacy ingredients included in our formulations and our products for nylas naturals another thing that i think we need to see more of it's starting to change but we need to see more of it is a broader representation of afro hair and a broader representation of all skin types um, unfortunately, we're seeing an archetype of black beauty, which is often lighter skin tones and looser hair textures. Now, that doesn't cover the broad demographic of who we are as black women. We have, you know, various skin tones, various complexions and various hair types, all of which are beautiful. And we should push the message that all of them, you know, should be included in campaigns, etc. And at the forefront and forth and centre of what black beauty is. And that's something that I'm proactively trying to do in my brand is push that message of inclusivity and diversity across the spectrum of blackness yeah i love that like that 
that's the key message to get across. And, and to your point before that, like it makes complete sense as well that if you can work with the supply chain and make sure that these incredible uh, ingredients, materials that are coming in um, of the highest quality are affordable, that it makes everything much more accessible to everyone. So, absolutely. Um, Great answer. Yeah, that's a tough question. So I appreciate that. Um, so let's talk about Nyla Natural. Uh, sorry, Nyla's Naturals. And so um, I, I think people probably have guessed, but it'd be good to get your kind of um, your explanation anyway of, of like what the business is and, and how you're helping solve this problem. Yep. So Nyla's Naturals is a high performance textured hair care brand, and we aim to provide solution focused hair care for Black women. Um, so in addition to, you know, providing hair care that's natural, that's non-toxic, we actually aim to understand what are some of the challenges that we experience that are unique to textured hair types and how can we design our formulations to provide a solution to some of those challenges. So things like breakage, for example, we include a biomimetic pea protein in our formulations, which help to um, strengthen the hair from the inside of the cortex out and provide a coating on the hair that mimics the actual keratin of the hair, um, including, you know, um, an ingredient that has been more effective than minoxidil in its ability to help to regrow hair when we're experiencing hair loss. It's about, you know, really providing that high efficacy, high performance based product to the consumer. It is also about championing diversity and showcasing that, you know, we are not monolithic as, as a wider group of people and that beauty is diverse and that all of us in many respects reflect, you know, what beauty is and that standard needs to change. It needs to be all encompassing. Um, and finally, it's to showcase for Black women who are inspiring to be entrepreneurs that despite the challenges that we experience um, in accessing funding, accessing opportunities, that with resilience, you know, I'm trying to be that example that, that we can achieve those goals and ambitions. So that's the, the aim of the brand. Oh, love all of it and that's when I was doing when I was doing my research and I, and I think this is where like people underestimate just how much power a brand or the company has and how empowering it can be for others and how it can kind of shine the light for others to to follow um I'm gonna I guess go back to the early days I know you said that the the motivation for Nylas Naturals obviously came from your daughter and that's what it's named after mm-hmm. um and I think she had very delicate skin and, and the products available at the time just weren't suitable it'd be really great to understand I guess how you go from I guess there um where you're i assume experimenting getting your own kind of ingredients in to like what was the first product you developed who were you selling it to what was your kind of initial go-to-market oh my go-to-market strategy now that that's a funny story (laughs) so so yeah um with my daughter having eczema when she was you know under a year old, she developed quite aggressive eczema. Her skin would literally, you could literally peel it off. It was that bad. And I just struggled to watch my daughter in so much discomfort. You know, seeing a child uncomfortable in their own skin is heartbreaking. And I have got quite a um, obsessive 
nature at times. Like I, I get quite fixated on a topic and I, I can become quite obsessed with that topic. And it became eczema in my desire to alleviate my daughter's um, experience and discomfort. I became quite fixated with eczema and that spiraled into what I call ingredient consciousness. So I really started scrutinizing the ingredients in the products that were on offer on the shelf, but also what the doctors was giving me in terms of steroid creams, et cetera. And it, it they became this kind of, um, balancing act where I didn't want to put the steroid creams on her because that would cause long-term side effects and issues. But I also didn't want to watch her struggling and itching and really uncomfortable in her skin. So I started to look at natural remedies and homeopathic things to do. And, you know, I found products online that were really plant-based and beautiful and, and I could alleviate her skin condition with that. But the challenge then became her scalp. You know, I couldn't find a Afro hair care product that wouldn't irritate her scalp and an eczema on her scalp, but would also care for her hair. And so I started importing products in from the USA. It was really exciting at first because they had natural products having a bigger demographic of black people. Um, but then it became unsustainable. The first couple of times it was fun. But then when the custom charges really started kicking in, I was like, yeah, this, this isn't going to be a long-term solution. And then it was like, okay, if they can do it there, I can do it here. If I need this product for my daughter, then there are also other women, other mothers, other people like me who are looking for a similar product. And then I started making products at home, um, buying raw materials in, on my kitchen table, I'd done a basic cosmetic formulation course. And, you know, I started formulating my own products for my daughter and for myself and giving it to friends and family, which was great. It was working. I became a little soap maker. It was excellent. But what I found was they still lacked that high performance that I wanted. They lacked the ability to kind of maintain a hydration balance. And there were just things that I thought I don't have the capacity to do and the skill set. So I um, then started looking for a cosmetic scientist, went through about four or five of those before I found someone who one understood what I wanted to do or understood what I wanted to do in terms of developing a natural product but a product that wasn't designed to straighten afro hair it was really difficult getting them to understand that concept <laughs> um so i found someone who was willing to work with me on that and then started the process of formulating with a cosmetic scientist um once we stumbled on the formulation that worked um i ordered a batch of products to make a long story short and got a thousand units of what I could afford, which was my shampoo and my conditioner initially. Um, and I remember them arriving on my doorstep. And here's the funny thing. <laughs> I remember thinking, shit, <laughs> how am I going to sell these? <laughs> I had absolutely no business acumen, no goal to market strategy, no budget, nothing. I just knew I wanted to create a product. And that's what I was focused on. 
So now I've got a thousand units of a shampoo and conditioner that I need to sell. And I literally took it old school. I would, you know, have them in the boot of my car. I was rocking up to schools and marketplaces and I was doing my best in terms of word of mouth and word of mouth grew and our customer base grew, but it was all organic. I'd done, I think, 12,000 in the first year with absolutely no marketing as a side hustle, 14,000 in the second year. And then I decided, actually, I think I should try and do something with this and really establish a business. And that's when I went on Dragon's Den. That's when I went on Dragon's Den to try and get some investment. Oh, such an incredible story. And I, I think you can never underestimate someone who's got like a really powerful motivator. They're solving a genuine problem that exists. Um, you, yeah, those people are always going to go much, much further <laughs> than someone just want, wants to make some quick money. Um, and I definitely want to talk to you about the Dragon's Den experience, but I'm going to, I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. And I guess like the, the, some of the, one of the common themes throughout this conversation far has been around the ingredients. Um, and I'm not going to, ask you to go through the individual ingredients in, in each of the products but I just I just want to say a bit more about like your guiding principles when it comes to Nylas Naturals and how you think about ingredients um and like how that differs from some of the other products in the market at the moment well our guiding principles is to use products that are as close to their natural source as possible um so we you know have a very high natural rate of 98% natural products that are included in our product um, or ingredients in our products, I should say. We only select raw materials that have a low hazard score. And to assess the hazard rating of our raw materials, we use a website called the Environmental Working Group. And that provides a database of all of the raw materials that are included in products. So then we search our that database for the raw material we're considering and we make sure that it has a very low hazard and low toxicity rating and there's good data behind that raw material before we include it in our product as that's really important to us the health and well-being of our customers is paramount to the business um, and then the next thing that we look at once we've identified that it's natural, that it's got a low hazard rating, we want to have an understanding of the efficacy. So where possible, we're using ingredients that have data behind its performance and its efficacy. And that data is not just anecdotal. So, for example, there are a lot of hair growth oils on the market at the moment, which are using ingredients which have no scientific evidence evidence behind its ability to um, promote follicular regeneration and promote hair growth, we've actually used an ingredient that has significant data behind its capacity and ability to do so. And we've included it at the rates that have been advised by the ingredient suppliers. So those are the unique differences of Nyla's Naturals. And I think that's what sets us apart from some of our competitors. A little break from the show. If you're listening and thinking, I'd love to work for a company like this, the good news is you can. Go and visit www.jobsforgood.io, where they only have four good companies on their platform, ranging from social justice to food waste to climate change and much more. You can filter jobs by impact area, preferred way of working, skill sets, and find the perfect company and position for you. So if you do one thing today, check out www.jobsforgood.io. Now back to the podcast. And... Uh, 
come back, I know you mentioned the kind of the initial go to market strategy was quite quite an interesting one, um, but you got to start somewhere. <laughs> In terms of, I guess, like um, growth strategy from that point onwards, I know you mentioned Dragon's Den, but like you know, you started off like you know a lot of good hustlers do, where you're selling stuff out the back of your car. Any anyone that will take it, getting the word out there. After that point, like, were you starting to focus on like retail? Was it more online? Um, and then, like, how does that compare to where you are today in terms of your main yeah. channels? Well, before that, before going on Dragon's Den, I had reached out to a few retailers. So we had reached out to Superdrug and we'd reached out to Holland and Barrett. And we had really positive conversations with both retailers in that at the time we pitched to them, we pitched to get them to, one, understand the demographics, sending a lot of information about the black hair care segment, but also understanding the importance of providing a diverse range of products to service users. And they were totally on board, right? At the the time, um, Superdrug had a um, Shades of Beauty campaign, which was about promoting different types of beauty um, and ensuring that they had products to meet the diverse range and, and requirements of their customers. So it kind of just fit in nicely with where they were at the time. Um, so, you know, we really wanted to make sure that our products were accessible to the service user. And we, you know, established a really good relationship with key buyers before going on to Dragon's Den. And Dragon's Den, for me, the reason why I applied for that show was kind of multifaceted. I, one, obviously wanted to get investment because I had no working capital. I had no money injected into the business. Everything I used to that point was bootstrapped. And secondly, it was a brilliant way of getting the brand in front of millions of people. And I just had the capacity to do so otherwise. Definitely. Yeah. I've had two guests um, from the show that have actually gone on to Dragon's Den after this. And um, one was on hand. I don't know if you saw that one. That was fairly recently. And one was Amelia from Bide. Right, um, okay. But uh, yeah, to your point, I, I don't think there's a better way, especially for a consumer brand to get exposure out there. Um, the audience you're reaching is just insane. Like no amount of marketing spend could replicate that. Um, so makes makes complete sense. And then um, funding wise, I, I think you mentioned before we started recording. So, so am I right in thinking it's mainly been self-funded, obviously had some investment from Dragon's Den. And I think are you just trying to, you're raising at the moment? I didn't take it. I didn't take oh, it. Okay. Yeah, I turned it down. Um, so up until this point, we've been bootstrapped. There's been grants, um, local grants, which, you know, for Innovate UK, for example, which supported our product development side of things. Um, I took out a small business loan to support, you know, the startup cost of the brand. But otherwise, we have been pretty much bootstrapped to this point. And now I want to get to the next stage. We're a six-figure brand. And we retail in super drug and boots at the moment. And to get to the next stage of business growth, we require investment. And how how are you finding that investment experience? I think I read a stat. It wasn't from a few years ago, but I think it was around like less than 2% of VC funding um, goes to like um, all ethnic founded teams. Uh, What barriers are you finding when you're trying to raise at the moment? What's your experience been? Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it kind of underpins that statistic, my experience. So <laughs> trying to say this in the most PC way possible. <laughs> um, my, 
mentality towards fundraising has always been, I have to, as black people, we need to prove the concept before we get funding, while other people get funding to prove the concept, right? So I know that I have to work twice as hard and be twice as good in order to get the attention of investors. Not only am I black, but I'm also a woman. So when we look at statistics for females that get investment, it's also quite shocking. (laughs) So there's a double whammy in terms of the barriers that I am going to experience in accessing funding. And I get that. Now, I don't think that the biases that I'm experiencing are conscious biases. I think they're very much unconscious and a lack of understanding of the market and the product, which kind of, I think, prevents many of the investors from investing. Because let's face it, unfortunately, the Black community have not reach the position because of many barriers that we face to economic empowerment. We've not reached a position where we are, you know, have a significant community of black investors. It's changing now, but we haven't reached that position yet. And many of the investors that we're approaching, they, they just don't understand the demographic, the market, the product. So you have to also get them to the point of understanding then the importance of understanding the business model and then they invest. So there's just that extra layer um, that we have to penetrate in order to, to get that investment. For me, um, when I'm having conversations, when I'm pitching, I've had exceptional feedback. So I recently won a regional pitching competition, uh, which enabled me to then pitch in front of a group of angel investors. And the feedback that I've had has always been positive, but the money is very slow in coming. Um, another one of the challenges that I've experienced is a competitor brand had done very well a couple of years ago in securing a lot of investment. So the companies, the VCs that would typically invest in underestimated, I don't like to use the word underrepresented because we're not underrepresented. We're here. Black women and black people start businesses at a faster rate than other demographics. The problem is we're underestimated. Um, so the companies that will typically invest in underestimated founders have invested in that business. So now it's like, oh, we've done it now. We've reached our quota. Right. <laughs> we've got our token person. We're not, um, we're not able to invest in you because of a conflict of interest or other reasons. So it is a little bit more challenging. However, I am a very resilient person. I'm very hardworking and I will get there. You know, I'm having positive conversations. We've got two angel investors who are interested in further conversations. I have a VC and group that's now also invested in taking conversations further. And I'll get there. I'll get there. It'll take me more time, but I'll get there. I have <laughs> zero doubts about that. <laughs> I was going to say, if I was going to back someone, it would be you, Cam. Um, so my next question is, in, ter- in terms of like what the funding will be used for, what what will that look like in the next year or two? What have you got plans? Go oh, not having to hustle anymore would be great. <laughs> You know, um, being able to concentrate on one thing. So I don't take money out of the business at the moment, um, which means that I have to also focus on other things in order to generate income for myself. 
Um, so it'd be nice to just be able to focus slowly on solely on the brand. It would also mean more products. I've got so much ideas. I'm such an ideas person. So to be able to expand the range of products and, you know, meet the multifaceted needs of black hair care, that would be awesome and really excited for the ability to do so. And then um, thirdly, it's to, it's to go across the pond and go into the USA. Um, just to give you an idea on stats in the UK, we make up less than, um, 3% of the population. In the U- US, it's, um, 40 million people who are, um, identify as black in the UK. It's less than 3 million. So it's, you know, a massive difference. Huge and the market. US provides a massive opportunity for us to grow and scale. Also interested in Brazil and South Africa. Love that. Well, I'm looking forward to this happening. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you are as well. It will have a claim in it. It will happen. <laughs> it will. It will. Um, and then I want to talk to you a little bit about some of the work you're doing outside of Nyla's Naturals, because you're doing loads of good stuff. Um, but I think the thing that really caught my eye was the, the work you're doing in, in like the care and fostering space. Um, so I yeah. think, you know, obviously very passionate about kind of Afro and textured hair care. Um, and I think from what I understood, you've been, uh, you have your own charity where you've been working with, within the care system, helping foster parents to take better care of their children's hair care. Um, yeah. can you change, like for some context first, can you just paint a picture of, I guess, what that looks like at the moment? What are some of the problems yeah. exist when it comes to, yeah. Of course. So the reason why, um, I started that was I have been a backup foster carer for a family member for over 20 years. And what I was finding was that black children were a mixed race children were coming to us from other care homes where, which were transracial. So they were being cared for by white foster carers or Asian foster carers. And when they were coming to us, unfortunately their hair and their skin hadn't been cared for properly. So they had, you know, very, very dry skin, very dull looking skin. Their hair was matted and dry and breaking. And that there's statistics that shows that for black children in the care system, the additional problem is having their cultural needs met and their personal care needs met, which not only affects them in the home, it actually has a knock-on effect of their on their confidence, on how well they perform in school, how well they do in life, actually, because, you know, if they don't perform well in school because of lack of confidence with who they are as individuals, then, of course, that's going to affect GCSE outcomes and their um, prospects for long-term achievement and what I was finding is I was you know looking after these black children and then you know getting their hair done teaching them how to do their hair and then they would move on with that information and that knowledge um and then when we'd look back at those children and because my auntie liked to keep in contact as much as possible they were doing better when they left and I realized that actually in order to help solve this problem, we needed to train all foster carers and all social workers and adoptive parents so that any child from any race that they took care of had the same standard of care once they were in that home environment. So I um, put a training package together and literally started reaching out to different um 
you know, children's trust around the country, highlighting what the needs were and also how I could solve those needs through training and through the brand and kind of merge those two interests to create something that was very unique. And it, you know, it took off quite well. We had quite a few trusts that were interested in the training and we've trained over 300 foster carers and social workers. And it's so beautiful to know that, you know, they now have the skills and the capacity to adequately care for a different hair type. And it's not that they didn't want to, they just didn't know how, and now they know how. So, you know, it's seeing them as carers have that knowledge and feel more confident in the ability to meet the needs of the children that they're caring for. For me, you can't put a price on that. That's beautiful. You know, I love doing that. That's definitely my passion. Definitely my passion. It's incredible because most importantly, helping the children with confidence growing up is hard enough, let alone, like you mentioned, if, if you're growing up and you've got you know, skin skin problems or stuff and, and you, you the person you go to is looking after you doesn't really have the answer, so can't help you. And secondly, yeah. like you said, you, you're making the, the carers, the foster parents um, better educated so they can do a better job, which naturally helps them feel better as well about the situation. Yeah. So it's, it's, in, it's, it's incredible. Empowering. It's empowering, you know, yeah. just to give you an, a story um I've had some of the foster carers echo this and I've seen it myself where black children say actually I don't want to be black you know I I don't want to have this hair type or I, I wish I was white I wish my hair was different and that's because one they're in an environment where they don't see themselves and their beauty reflected but two their hair and their skin is not being cared for in the right way so they can't see the beauty of it within themselves and it's heartbreaking to know that there are small children out there who not only have to adjust to being in an environment where they're constantly being moved around and there's that instability for their life as sorry <laughs> sorry that's <laughs> yes, right take a moment I'm a crier that they have that instability but also they have an, an extra component in that their basic needs are not being met through a lack of knowledge. If I can do something about that, I, I will, you know, and that's why, um, that's why I wrote the book to empower children. And that's why I do the training to empower the foster carers. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking to listen to, like as a father of two, I couldn't imagine anything worse if that's how my children felt. So seeing that experience and that, I, I can imagine why um, that, naturally causes emotions and um it's just incredible to hear about the work you're doing and um i guess to recap that the work you described of you working with the foster and the, the care parents that's the untangled project right yes that's the untangled project and and how does it work at the moment are you the person having to do all the training or have you got people yeah i do the training so <laughs> so um i offer two kind of options i can do training online which is easier, um, but I prefer to do in-person training because I rock up with all these like natural hair wigs and we actually get into it. You know, we, we learn to plait, we learn to detangle, we learn to hydrate, we do all of those things. But we also look at some of the historic discrimination of Afro hair. We look at our unconscious bias. We look at some of the words that we're using to describe Afro hair, like difficult, unmanageable, dry. And we think about the 
mental connotations that can have on a child. And we look at reframing some of those negative words. So instead of saying dry hair, we say thirsty hair. Instead of saying the hairs that's difficult, we say, you know, Afro hair requires more time, more patience, more love. So we reframe it so it's positive, which leaves the child feeling more positive about their hair, more empowered about their hair, but understanding their hair requires an extra nurturing to get the best from it. Yeah. Yeah. No, again, as, as you know, someone who's got two young children, I think that the words you use that you have to be really careful with because you can't, you can sometimes like underestimate the impact of a word that you may use the child Absolutely. not thinking of it and they take it in a very different way. Um, and that kind of reminds me um, of, of the book you wrote as well, which I know is part of the training, um, which I think is called My Hair Shrinks. And um, yes. I loved it. Like as, as someone who's got quite boring, like, you know, straight hair, um, it really helped me understand, especially from the child's point of view, like how they feel, what they're going through, what they need from people. Um, can you explain, you know, what, what, what were you trying to, like, what was the message you're trying to get with across with that book? Is, is that something given then to the care or foster parents to read with the child so they can kind of like bond and. Yeah. So it's, it's, again, it's kind of got that double double prong to it in that the foster carer can read it with the child and bond with the child and if the child is over the age of five or six the child can read the book themselves and see themselves reflected in the character but also learn in a creative way how to care for their hair and what their hair needs so we go through the whole entire wash day process with the child but also the nighttime care routine and then loving their hair the next day. And I just think it's a really creative way of um, getting a young person to, to see themselves reflected in an interesting character and also understand how special and beautiful Afro hair is by putting like the, the magical spin on it. Like my hair does this magic trick. It shrinks. I think that was, yeah, it's, it's really good. And the children that I've seen use the book really do love it. And it, it, yeah, it does exactly what I hoped it would do. Amazing. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed reading it. I, and I know it's, it's mainly a part of the training project, like program at the moment. Are there aspirations that that will be published in its own right? Cause I feel that's something like loads of parents and kids would love. Yeah, um, I, I definitely would like to look into publishing the book. I want to develop the characters within the book. At the moment, the book is, um, the characters is a white carer and a black child. And I'd like to switch that up a little bit. I'd like to have, you know, Asian carers and a black child. I'd like to have black carers and a black child. Um, and also have mixed race children, other ethnicity groups and provide just a, a whole, you know, kind of book on or books on the care experience for different children. That would be amazing. It's definitely a long-term ambition, but it's an ambition that I have. Great. Great. And, and, and the next thing I was going to ask you about, just chatting a bit more about you, kind of your past, like, you know, you personally, like your journey. Um, you know, one thing I'd, I'd say out of all the guests I've had on, like you're up there as one of the most experienced when it comes to like public speaking. Like you've been on primetime TV shows, you've been on podcasts, you've been interviewed for magazines, big newspapers. Um, it, it, does public speaking come naturally or is it something you've had to work on a lot? Because it comes across as very natural. So No, not at all. I am actually naturally an introvert, um, really shy. I hate being in front of the camera. I hate being in the limelight. Um, and initially I think that's one of the things that held me back in business because I just, I just didn't want to be the face of the brand at all. And I would 
find any excuse not to be front and center. But I read a book called The Year of Yes by Shonda Rhimes, and it was really motivating for me. And it was an eye opener because it, I realized that I was blocking my own blessings by, you know, not stepping out of my comfort zone. So even though it doesn't come naturally to me, I kind of forced myself to step out of my comfort zone and do things that I, that I was uncomfortable with. And as a result of that, my capacity in that area has increased. Um, do I like being on stage and public speaking? I get nervous, <laughs> you know, um, and it's, it does, definitely doesn't come naturally. But what I realize is that I have a message people want to hear and that I'd be doing a disservice to myself and a disservice to the community by not sharing it. Um, and I'm, I'm becoming slowly but surely I'm becoming more, more comfortable in front of the camera and in front of people. Yeah. Well, like I said, it comes across as very natural, but, and, um, yeah, I interview a lot of founders on this podcast and I think people may be surprised. I think if you ask the majority of them, they would describe themselves as introverts. And what I found is that even though there's a natural introversion in the character, in their character, it's actually the fact that they have such a powerful mission that means so much to them that kind of overrides it. And, and they just want to get that message out to as many people as possible. Um, and because of that, it becomes very genuine, very authentic. Like, you know, they're speaking from the heart and that, that hits harder than a very practiced public speaker who maybe doesn't believe so much in what they're doing, but they come across very you know, confidently. Um, I, I think that, that kind of raw, genuine authenticness is something you just, you cannot fake. Um, so, um, yeah, but I wanted to ask, cause again, I'm, I'd say I'm a natural introvert doing this podcast is not where I would, would choose to be, <laughs> but then, but then I force myself out of my comfort zone. I get to have yeah. these lovely, interesting conversations and I always walk away from them feeling like really energized. Even though at the start, I'm like nervous. <laughs> um, and I was going to ask, and I think you kind of answered this a little bit earlier, but you, really inspiring person, Cam, like you're doing so much different stuff. I don't know how you fit it all in the day. Um, and then you mentioned earlier, like, you know, when you can, you read books. Like, I was going to ask, like, what else do you do to, to stay on top of your own well-being? Like, is it just escaping with a really good book when you can, or is there anything else you do that helps? <coughs> Sorry. Um, I've started to prioritize sleep. Um, when I was thrusted into the spotlight after having gone on Dragger's Den in 2021, I felt this overwhelming pressure to perform, to do well, to, to grow the brand. Cause it was like, I had all of these eyes on me and then, you know, being someone who, you know, had a closed Instagram account, only had 50 friends and all of a sudden <laughs> I'm like going places and people are like, Oh, I know who you are. And it, it was overwhelming. And I, I found that I was like going to bed at ridiculous time, like one, two o'clock in the morning. I'd read the 5am club. So I was waking up at five o'clock and I was doing that consistently. And it was just so unsustainable. It really started to impact on my mental well-being. Cognitively, I wasn't as sharp and as quick as I, I could be. You know, I, I wasn't that creative. My mood declined and it, it just wasn't sustainable. I then read Matthew Walker's Why We Sleep and had a completely different perspective on the importance of getting a good night's rest. So now it doesn't really matter how busy I am. I 
do try at least three or four times a week to go to sleep at a decent hour around nine o'clock. Um, and I've also adopted this mentality of not trying to balance my life. You know, people often talk about this work-life balance stuff. I realize it's a work-life blend. You know, I've realized that I have to try and blend the two as much as possible because I, I'm not this separate being that can separate being a mom and separate being an entrepreneur on both things. So how can I give both of them my time? And how can I, sometimes it means that one gets more time than the other, but it's about, you know, measuring that and making sure that I'm kind of all aspects and the multifaceted components of my life get attention. Um, and the gym, the gym this year, I'm sticking with it <laughs> for my well-being more than anything else. Just that time to, to switch off, have those endorphins raising, racing around my body, those feel good hormones. It's really important for, you know, as much as your physical well-being and your physical health, it's really important for your emotional and mental well-being as well. So that's something that I'm also kind of sticking to and committed to for the, you know, foreseeable future. Nice. Yeah. Lots, lots of important points there. I think the sleep one's a key one that people don't talk about enough. Cause I think there's this idea, you just grind it out and I can, I can make do with three hours sleep tonight. And I've found like I need seven, probably eight hours sleep a night right. to be really effective and productive. Otherwise it just doesn't work. Like every once in a while, sure. You can, you can do a late one, but I think in general, that's not a pattern you can keep up and, the work-life blend, as you put it, I really like that. I think what I've learned is um, some days that, you know, work does have to take priority, but when I'm with my kids and my partner, like I have to be present. That's the thing I really yeah. got wrong before. Like I'd, I'd never quite switch off from either and it'd be like a distraction. Yeah. Whereas actually it's like when I'm doing work, I'm in work mode. When I'm a dad, I'm in dad mode and the phone is away and I'm not checking emails. Um, and yeah, I'm, I exercise every day. I find that just helps me switch off and actually just kind of get in the right right place for the day. Um so yeah, love love all of those points. Um yeah. But cool. it's such to your point, it's such a dangerous rhetoric, I think, you know, that it circulates in the entrepreneurial community, like grind it out, don't sleep, hustle hard, keep going and you'll get there. You can sleep when you're dead. You know, actually, if you don't sleep, you're shaving off around 20% of your lifespan anyway. So you'll die quicker. You know, it's, um, it's really important. I think that we kind of try and get rid of that toxic narrative because actually I think it's only something like 3% of the world population can go without significant sleep. The rest of us actually need quite a lot of sleep to function. So yeah, anyone read that book, Life Changer, Matthew Walker, <laughs> Why We Sleep. <laughs> do it um cool well cam i think that's pretty much it like it's been such a pleasure having the show and i've learned an absolute ton um in terms of follow-up so for anyone that wants to learn more about nylas naturals or follow the brand like where, where are you most active on social media so the brand is really active on instagram and facebook and also twitter and the um handle is at nyla underscore k and the for me, you can get me on Instagram, which is I am Camise, or on LinkedIn, which is Camise Davis. Perfect. And I'll make sure those are all in the show notes as well. Thank um, you. Cool. Well, Cam, look, thank you again for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure. And um, yeah, wish you all the best. Thanks for having me, Craig. It's been awesome. <laughs>
That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe and leave a review. Better yet, tell a friend about the show. The more people we can get involved, the more hope we have for making the world a better place. This episode was brought to you by Craig Turner, produced by Jabril Al-Sahami and sponsored by Jobs for Good. Until next time.